Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Scarcity Complex podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about a topic that isn't always the easiest topic to talk about. It's something that's always sort of out there that we all kind of know is there, yet more times than not, if we're really being honest, we kind of live in denial that it's a real thing. And that is the topic of death. And if you listened to the third podcast where I was talking about the adventure and the fun that we're going to have, you're probably like thinking right now, what? <laughs> what, what, what's this guy talking about? Like, how is this fun? And when I was putting together this podcast and beginning to think about just what it would look like, I always knew that I wanted the fourth or the fifth episode to really kind of dig in a little bit deeper to uh, the topic of death. And now with everything that is going on in our world, uh, I think that really feels and is more relevant than ever. It's like the Band-Aid has sort of been ripped off so many things right now, or these ideas and these things that we knew are kind of out there are kind of being presented to all of us to really just be present with. And so this interview is an interview that I recorded literally a year ago in July of 2019 with a friend of mine named Ziri Rideau. Uh, she is a certified death midwife who basically helps people as they are going through the dying process. She has literally held probably hundreds of people in her arms as they literally transition uh, from life uh, to death. And she herself uh, lost both of her parents. She lost uh, several close friends and through those experiences, she realized that there was kind of a void in our culture here in the U.S. of really helping people deal with the awkwardness of death and trying to find ways to make it more meaningful, not just for the person who might be dying, but also for loved ones. And so my hope is that you'll just keep an open heart and an open mind as you listen to some of her stories and just some of her own wisdom of what she's experienced in her years of working in this field. And so even though this is a topic that we don't always talk about, I think you'll find from this conversation that it might actually leave you with something that, for lack of a better word, strangely might even warm your heart in the same way that it did mine as I had uh, my conversation with Ziri. I hope you enjoy today's show. It's the Scarcity Complex Podcast. Today I'm joined by my fabulous friend, Ziri. Ziri, do you want to share just a little bit about what you do for a living and why, why I invited you on today, aside from all the other interesting parts about who you are? <laughs> well, thank you, Jay. Yes, I am a certified death midwife and a funeral director, and I run the first American alternative funeral home. This is, uh, by American standards, something scary, of course, because death is something that's bad taste to even talk or let alone think about. But um, yeah, this is what I do since I'm a child, basically. I sit with people as they're in the dying process. I sit bedside with them. I support them. I hear their stories. I support their families. And it is a wonderful, sacred work to me. And so I made it eventually a profession. I did it for many, many years just, you know, as a volunteer. And it's profound and wonderful. Hmm. Wow. What were some of your earliest uh, experiences with it in terms of, because death is something that most people don't talk about. 
and we kind of pretend that it doesn't exist, even though everything dies. So what, for you, you're someone, I believe, who's very comfortable with death, with talking about it and helping other people become more comfortable with it. So I don't know, I'm just curious, a little more of your own experience with that, I guess. So how did you... Well, to start, when I was four years old, I was designated by my grandma and great-grandma, who were shaman, to basically participate in that process of my great-grandma dying. So I was sitting with her as she was dying. I was four. And then, you know, my grandma said that we're going to speak to her after she had already passed. And we put a candle on. And I really could hear my great-grandma talking to me. It was very fascinating. And so from small on, I learned that... When you die, you don't lose your life. You only lose your body. This is a tremendous difference in attitude towards the whole process because you don't have to say goodbye forever. The nature of your communication will change. You know, you cannot touch the other person, obviously, but you will develop very fine-tuned ways to communicate. It can be through thoughts. It can be through a music that's suddenly playing that you always listen to with that person that you loved or so. There's so many different ways. And then, of course, I went through a long row of pets that I loved that died, you know, like most kids probably. And my special grandma, who was like my mom almost, uh, she died when I was about 12. And so that was also a very special experience because I was actually not even knowing that she was so sick. The family had kept that from us. And I was lying somewhere upstairs in the living room. And suddenly it was in the broad daylight. Um, she came to me, you know, she lived 300 miles away, but she came to me and she said, Hey, I just want to let you know, and I'm totally fine. And I've gone and I'm like, wow. And I knew that moment that she had died. And they called us an hour later from the hospital and said that she had died. I already knew that. And so it was after that, that she has continued my training, basically the shaman style training from the other side, weaving these two worlds together and also enabling me, you know, to approach the subject without fear. Of course, I encounter many people, especially in America, where this is such a no-no topic, you know, um, who don't even want to talk about it at all. And But when one can reframe it a little bit in the sense of saying, yeah, there is continuity afterwards, you know. Uh, that is a huge, yeah, I mean, a huge help to people. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's a really, that's a really great setup to what you do. And, um, and you started just a second ago talking about um, America. You know, you're just explain, you know, where you grew up and that you're not originally from America. You're, you are now, but I mean, and just, the, I don't know if there's a difference between countries and what you've noticed culturally, maybe between? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I grew up in Germany, but with a family coming from Transylvania, which is in Romania. And these are both cultures, which I feel are much more natural about the whole death and dying process. I'm in America now for 25 years. And I learned that America is an extremely death phobic society where it's considered bad taste to talk about it. Uh, insensitive to approach anybody about it. You're not going to get invited again if you ask how your grandma died or something. <laughs> people don't want to talk about and it. Why do you think that is? Like, why, why do you think people are so hesitant? I feel in general, America is a culture, and I can say that after 25 years of living here, where people have allowed each other to never exit their comfort zone. So that means everybody's supposed to be nice and polite to a degree of almost fake and phoniness, and so that means if you notice a little discomfort, if you're supposed to stretch a little outside your comfort zone, 
um, people shut down this conversation. Mm -hmm. They either come up with a pretext why they have to leave now or they just totally change the topic. So they're not used to that. There is not, I uh, would say, conflict structure or conflict culture developed. So it is either you don't say anything for a long time or you just drop the nuclear bomb. Mm -hmm. But there's very Social few media, shades right? of gray, <laughs> very few shades of gray in between where... Yeah. You dig inside yourself, even though it hurts and even though it's difficult, and you realize the other one is not trying to provoke you or hurt you, but you're developing something together. Mm -hmm. And so I feel this is very different in cultures that are much more confrontative, let's say like the German culture, or even let's say uh, Romanian culture, Italian cultures, these are Southern cultures, where people are also polite, but they go to, you know, they do approach you with topics that are hard and difficult. Mm -hmm. And there's more space there to make mistakes. There's more space to be uncomfortable, to cry in front of each other. Mm -hmm. Here, you're supposed to allow each other a facade that is spotless. And I think the whole shying away from difficult topics that might push you over the edge to make you cry or make you feel upset is considered, you know, impolite. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know you and I agree on this, but, but it's not just impolite, but then kind of, I think you hit on it. It's like we're denying reality. And so, you know, the, the theme of this podcast is scarcity. And that ultimately, so much of the scarcity mindset is this desire that we all want to feel like we're okay and that we're safe. And so I'm wondering, like, as you think about that topic and you think about death, which is really the truest form of scarcity, because we all are going to die. Like in that sense, <laughs> like we do have limited time, right? That that's the one thing, like you just said, that we don't really spend much time thinking or talking about. And just curious, like what what your thoughts are on that, and also just like what could be gained if we did talk more about it, if we lived with a greater awareness of which you obviously do because you see it every day. But most people, yeah. Well, I think dealing consciously with death and dying has made me appreciate life so much more. And the little small things in life that so many of us take for granted become precious and special if you understand that you can only experience them while inside a human or a physical body, you mm -hmm. know. Later, when you're as a spirit around, you know, you still realize what's going on, you see everything, but you can't touch, you can't sense, smell, taste, you know. So I feel... It has allowed me to develop a sensory experience of this world, which is very precious to me. I feel also that if you don't encounter the idea of death with so much fear, um, fear in other areas of your life will not be so dominant. So, for example, you can't be blackmailed to do a job that eats out your soul and uh, exploits you because you're not afraid of oh, losing the work, losing the money, mm -hmm. because all these things that are fear-based, and I do feel America is extremely fear-based society where you always have the carrot and the stick. And the funny way in today's society, the carrot is money, and that's basically all there is. You know, It's not about happiness, um, family, other things. They give all of this up for money. And so the only carrot is money, but then sticks, there's like thousands of them. You know, What if you're homeless? What if you look ugly? What if you look old? Mm -hmm. what, especially for women, you know? Yeah. What if you're not healthy? What if you can't portray this super attractive 20-year-old um, chick or something? It's just really, this makes us uh, easy to blackmail into performing works we don't want to do, into doing things we don't believe in, and talking with family members in ways that feel inauthentic to us. So actually developing the courage to deal with death, I believe, makes us also more authentic 
in our expression of ourselves and help us developing courage to be ourselves in every way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I know it seems like when people get older and I know as I've gotten older, I've, I think years ago, I think it was, I don't know, I'm not even like a huge Bonnie Raitt fan, but I heard like mm-hmm. an iTunes thing where she was talking about different decades and I forget what decade she was saying, but when you get to this decade, that's when you really don't care what people think, <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. And I don't know if you relate to that. I mean, you, we all have such different personalities, but you strike me as someone that has always sort of lived on your own terms. And, and I'm wondering if you can, in some ways, aside from how much of it might just be personality, how much of that do you think is because of what you just said? Like, cause yeah, I kind of grew up with death and, and I grew up in a different culture where we're allowed to express joy we're allowed to express anger both at the same time like we don't have to live in these opposite only worlds mm. and well it's probably coming from the experience of small on of not fitting in being an outsider mm. my parents were immigrants mm-hmm. we didn't speak german at home mm-hmm. you know i looked funny my hair looked strange it's the same like somebody maybe gay you know and realize oh like uh, no, no matter what i'm gonna do they're not gonna like me like this i had that experience no matter what if I just open my mouth and say something and have an accent, they're going to laugh or I'm not going to be accepted. So that gave me a lot of freedom to mm. develop what I was interested in. Yeah. And so there is actually an upside to that. Mm-hmm. Even though as a child, it might be difficult. I want to encourage everybody who's listening to this to say, what is so special and unique about me? How am I different? And how is this actually my amazing potential? How, you know, if we are these different diamonds and crystals with all these many beautiful sides. How has this extreme hard pressure shaped me like diamonds get cut under tremendous pressure? How has this shaped me as a a rock that was before kind of dull into this really amazing multifaceted uh, personality, you know, that I have something to contribute that's special to the society. And Mm. I I hope that you just embrace that and don't feel this is a mistake Mm. and you have to kind of make this go away. Yeah, because I mean, and that's beautiful because I think what I'm hearing you say too is like that's almost a death in and of itself is when we die to, in the case you shared when you were using your your stick analogy, right? It's like if people are able to perform and jump through some of those hoops, they're actually, it's actually prison. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) right? But yet what you're sharing is like from an early age, I didn't fit in. So I kind of got, you're saying I got that dose early on of like, like I could spend all this energy over here trying to be liked, but there's almost this weird gift that because I wasn't, it almost freed you to be more uniquely you than maybe somebody that might have spent decades trying to jump through those hoops. And so there's something really beautiful about what you're saying, because a lot of people who might relate to what you were just sharing, they might feel what you just said, a lot of pain. They might feel lonely. They might feel mm-hmm. like they're an outsider. But the way I think we're talking here, there's something really kind of there's a gift in that death of not getting to be liked. And I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is that... <laughs> no, that's exactly right. Yeah. I do feel, and this is the profound thing, you know, there is, uh, on the one hand, the economic system of America, capitalism, encourages people to be individuals, and that is encouraged in order to make them better consumers. So everybody should have their own car, their own house, their own fridge, so that they consume. But it doesn't really make encourage them to be themselves. It only gives them the choice between Pepsi and Coke. What if you don't like soda? You know, it's like there's no real choice. It's just a choice of being a consumer in different ways. And I want to go back to where we really have choices of asking much more profound 
questions about why we're here. What we're really doing with this life. Is this really true? We're supposed to be here to make money? If we're not living in awareness of our own mortality, we tend to settle for maybe what's put in front of us. Is that kind of what you're getting at a little bit? Like, Well, uh, yeah, I would say that exactly the choices we are offered seem very limited because they always include to be financially successful and that's it. And the consumerism doesn't even end with death because even at that point, the funeral industry comes to you and says, buy this casket for $10,000 and spend another $20,000 on, you know, putting somebody in the ground or something like this. And so it's like almost like we're just batteries to make this machinery go. And death is to me something sacred and much more profound. And I feel being at that, um, you know, it's like a, a, a veil between the worlds, I would call it, where um, the world of the material beings that we are currently and the non-material beings that our ancestors are, that are very much around. And we have access to all their experiences and their, and not just like the last five generations, but, you know, thousands of them where materialism wasn't such a big deal. And so if we tune into this knowledge, then I get again and again the same message that what we're here to do and what we're really you know, we're, the only really job we have while we come here is to accumulate consciousness and consciousness of a loving consciousness and um, feeding back these energies in the form of emotions to the other side, the non-material side, because the material side cannot have emotions since they're not embodied, but we can. That's the one thing we have as an edge over them. <laughs> and so you could say this could be considered a system of exchange between the living embodied and the non-embodied spiritual of, you know, we are having this whole environment of material things to create experiences, ex to create consciousness, and we're feeding this back to the other side. So it's a constant exchange. And if we're cut off from this other side, let's say the ancestors or the time after death, if we're totally ignorant of it, we're cutting off the idea why we're even here. Right. It's been replaced with something that doesn't feed us, in my opinion. Yeah, and that's your, boy, you're hitting on such a great point. So, like, this idea of scarcity is this idea that we're all alone, that we're cut off from other people, from the eternal, from God, from ancestors, whatever, you know, all those different things. And yet, I think you're hitting a really great point of that, the fact that we then look for something to consume shows that we have this hunger. We have this, we were created with that. So that's perhaps, I mean, I don't know if you agree with this, but perhaps that's why then the smorgasbord of consumerism is so attractive <laughs> because there is something in all of us that knows we were created to connect with something. And even if it's something that is sort of undynamic and it's a thing that we're consuming, it gives us a brief sense of something satisfaction until you know mm -hmm. we've used it right and it doesn't have anything else to give and then we're on to the next thing i mean i don't know if that rings for you or if you relate but you mentioned yeah cut off and yeah yeah because the whole idea of capitalism is serial consumerism because if you just have one thing that satisfies you for the rest of your life and then you don't buy anything new. <laughs> you know, the system doesn't work. Right. And so um, as we are realizing that we are living in a zero-sum game, meaning that if we take something from Africa 
then it's going to miss there. It's going to be missed there. Mm -hmm. We're going to have materials or things here. They don't have any more because we took them. And so eventually we have to come to a better balance. And yes, this is not a political podcast. I believe that too. But it's a very simple human exchange thing to realize if I take something somewhere, it's going to be missing there. And whatever I'm giving back, right. there has to be an equal exchange. Mm -hmm. You can't just constantly have unlimited growth And um, the only way where that works is in consciousness, actually, not in material things. Mm -hmm. And so I am a big fan of finding ways in our busy days, even if we're currently living in the cities where we basically have to slave away 10 to 12 hours a day just to maintain our living standard and mm -hmm. to subs have any kind of sustenance, to find a way every day, an hour or two, to develop a consciousness practice. This can be in many different forms. People need that to feed their souls because the material world alone cannot satisfy us. Yeah, let's and let's talk more about that because if somebody's listening or you know they think what how what what do you recommend for someone or what's been your experience if someone is living in a city and they have two jobs they've got a family they're trying to support they feel like they have almost no time and they're like wow well that all this consciousness stuff sounds great but I don't <laughs> I don't have the time. Like what, what would you say or from your own experience, any, any reflections from your own life of like what we can do even in small doses? Because I think that keeps some of us sometimes from exploring these things more. We think I've got to go meditate for an hour or find, what's the joke? They're like, well, when that Buddha statue finally comes, that's, that's when I'll finally <laughs> meditate. Like, you know, we have all these excuses. Yeah, like, but you know, you're making a good point there because this way is again a consumerism way of spirituality. True. I need the Buddha statue. I need my special yoga pants and mat. I need that class with the celebrity. This mm -hmm. is all material crap, honestly, I'm sorry to say. And um, what's really important is to find a tree, find a rock outside Maybe hug that tree, even though you might be afraid somebody sees you and you'll be called a hippie. doesn't matter, you know. So hug that tree, spend the 10 minutes and feel the life force in that being. Take that rock in your hand, hold on to it, realize how old it is and what we actually have in common. Mm -hmm. Develop a consciousness for the natural world. My grandma, who taught me as a child, you know, she, like I said, I come from a long family of shamanism. That's not a religion. It's more a philosophy that everything in this world is alive and has consciousness. And so she, for example, brought me to a road and says, see that roadkill in the middle of the road? Sit by it, fill yourself with that feeling, how it is to be that roadkill as the cars are driving over it incessantly. Wow. And, you know, as a child, you sit there, you don't have the judgment of, oh, this is bad, this is good. You just do it because you're small and your grandma told you to, you know. And so it was profound to realize, yes, um, there's so many different experiences to be had. You're not all of them joyful, but because they're experiences, they're precious to us. We can only have them while we're embodied. So again, take care of your own body. Consider it as a sacred avatar, a mm -hmm. vehicle, an interface with the material world. Feed it well, you know, give it rest, give it massages. If you're asking me what could people do in their daily life to develop a spiritual practice, this is what I'm talking about. Not to run to a church or guru or, you know, have the expensive membership into a spiritual club or whatever, <laughs> but find your own direct connection. You yeah. don't need the middleman who translates nature for you it's all right there for you mm -hmm. and that i mean depending on our backgrounds like whoever's listening like i mean i know for myself I've, i grew up evangelical i'm mystic now 
but like that whole process of, um, I mean, it sounded like, again, if I'm interpreting too much from what you said, but you were really blessed with like your grandmother and some people who kind of, in some ways, kind of almost at an early age kind of guided you to a place where they reminded you that you can connect with that in yourself. But I think that's something that probably still scares a lot of people is like, I remember for myself coming out of the evangelical world, when my walls sort of started to kind of come down, I remember just leaving it thinking, I have no idea what's coming next. I'm stepping out into this unknown place. I mean, you've dealt with a whole spectrum of people, of all religions, of all traditions through your work that you've done. I don't know if just any other thoughts come to you if somebody's like, well, what does that look like? Because I agree with you. I think that's the adventure we're all on, but I think that's the most exciting thing in the world. And I think it also scares most people too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, let me maybe encourage people to return to, if they can, to the consciousness they had as a child, where they were the actual self, okay? They were playful, they were curious about the world before all these messages came down like a hammer on them, like, this is wrong, you can't do this, you're not good enough. All these stupid messages we constantly are bombarded with as children. And if you start as a child being yourself, And then these messages come down, something develops, and that we call an ego. That ego encloses the self, almost like a fist encloses a precious stone in order to protect it. So the the ego develops to protect that self, but it also hinders its growth. It's having it in this hand so close and holds it so tight that we then often... Most of us develop only our ego. Our self gets stuck in the child face. And then most of us spend most of our lives, right, identifying and thinking our self is... The ego. The ego. That's right. And I mean, our and culture, no matter if it's religious or political or economic, encourages that because the ego is much easier to control because the ego... react to simple blackmail oh what i need more money i need more uh, success you know i need these kind of things and so the best way out of this to break free is really funny enough death is one of the moments in life where our heart because it's so hurt Mm -hmm. breaks open and people say my heart breaks but it of course only allows some light into these cracks of pain in your heart and so you're growing it's like a stretching and growing pain of your heart where you give birth just like birth hurts you give birth to yourself to your new self not to your ego and so for many people when somebody significant dies they have a window of opportunity (laughs) to allow this to break their self free but if they only return back to um, anger and bitterness and suing the doctors and getting mad at who is at fault for this death, they might miss this chance, you yeah. know. And so my work, I consider also to help people in this process, also the family members after somebody dies, to really open their hearts, discover their real self, mm-hmm. let pieces of this ego go. You know, we all need a certain ego in order to just feed ourselves and close ourselves if we're not going to be um, llamas in a, ca- in a cave somewhere mm-hmm. <laughs> in Himalaya. Sure. So it's not that I'm against the ego in general. I just don't want it to run our lives. Yeah. It's not authentically who we are. Yeah. Well, and you, you brought up a couple, I think, just really great points about, and we talk about this on the podcast, but this idea of returning to who we were when we were kids. Like we were so clear then. We didn't have what you just said. We didn't have all these 
I think I feel like I can remember and I feel like every kid can remember that one point growing up where someone or something finally came along and said, hey, you're being too loud or you're being too this. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. all of a sudden that sense of childlike innocence and wonder that we all had, like you said, that we came into this world with all of a sudden that's kind of our first, oh, yeah. it's not safe. It's not safe yeah, to you really be me. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and in that state, you know, we were living with open hearts. And so I don't know if there's, I don't think there's just one answer to this, but let's talk more about that. Cause so much of what we want this podcast to be about is what does it look like to live with an open heart? How does that happen? How do we navigate this world when, and you've probably seen it all with all your experiences with facilitating death where you see, I don't know. I mean, have you seen some people who have held on to grudges and they're coming to the funeral that you can tell there's still strife there or, I mean, like, <laughs> you're laughing, so. <laughs> well, you know, of course, I deal also with very traumatic death where one family member runs over a person of another family, you know, and so they hold them responsible for mm. um, killing their father and stuff. I facilitate forgiveness ceremonies for these families and I have encountered tremendous hatred. I would really call it hatred at each other projected on in evil intentions you know they projected and when they get to know each other actually they become friends it sounds strange but they start going hiking together they realize mm. they are bound by an experience of pain to an eternal bond there and i will again go back to the beginning of our talk about learning to lean outside your comfort zone yeah. meaning is this is what you need to grow if you cannot accept a little discomfort with your heart, a little stretching feeling, a little like, ooh, pushed, you know, and it's uncomfortable, just take a deep breath and say, yes, this is also me. This is what it's like to be alive. Yeah. And so um, I think America as a culture in general is going through a growing up process right now. And this is why, you know, we're seeing such extremes in many ways. But this is like... If you think of America as a teenager in the community of other continents that are other family members, um, you know, that's been the kind of rowdy, wild teenager. And it's coming of age. And there's some self-realization that has to happen in every teenager, you know, um, of who they are and that they're not the only one that matters in the family. <laughs> and so it's, it's coming to this place now. And I feel each person who allows this process um, will become a happier and bigger person because what you lose is a tremendous ego. But what you gain is a place in a family of the whole world, of an experience of oneness that gives you a place in this world forever without any condition, without you having to succeed and having 20 children and being a millionaire. Or I don't know. The expectations have become so ridiculous that I feel everybody is set up for failure. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, and that is kind of, so you just mentioned, you know, being set up for failure and too, that it seems like, I mean, again, we don't want to get too philosophical or political here, but so much of the good that has come from capitalism, we have things like air conditioning and iPhones. And like, so we, we know, and you and I both agree innovation is a good thing, but I think you just hit on something that we've also now gotten to this place where everything is a competition there always has to be a winner. There mm -hmm. always has to be a loser. Mm -hmm. And even with belief systems, right? With religions, like, well, I 
I have the right answers. I'm the yep. group that's going to heaven. And you're going to hell. Exactly, right? <laughs> oh, great. And I mean, and I guess that mm. predates capitalism, right? That goes back centuries. There were crusades and other wars mm. fought over that. But but it's interesting that like something in us wants that certainty, right? Something in us wants that sense of, you know, whatever it is. And then, and then I wonder sometimes if a lot of what you're talking about is just adding fuel to that versus this place that we were really created to live from, which when we're there, it feels like the greatest thing in the world. Like everything you're talking about, like when we're able to be in that conscious open space, the open hearted space, we're just like, Oh, I never want to leave here. (laughs) But then we do. So from your own experience, even when you feel like you leave that open hearted place, when you notice, okay, I think maybe my heart got closed off because part of the human experience, Mm -hmm. what do you how do you handle yourself or how do you approach yourself when you notice that happening? And I mean, I can share mine, but. Well, for me personally, I happen to be a nature lover in many ways. I am a big fan of horses. So I go out with nature, with horses, you know, to kind of recharge myself. It almost feels like this is the tractor beam that feeds me, that always brings me back to the default, that reminds me of who I am. And uh, of course, everybody gets um kicked off their good ride of their wife, you know, with sometimes small things in the human experience. And the important thing is to realize when this is happening. You know, if I'm getting super angry, if I'm starting yelling at somebody, then this is the moment to say stop to yourself, to not get further and further lost in that anger or in that feeling of being wronged and in the victimhood and all these things, but to take yourself out of the equation for a moment and to not just be reactive, There's an old rule also, for example, you drop a glass of water on the floor, it shatters. Instead of picking it up right away, I recommend for you to just walk away. Walk away from it. Don't feel you have to do it now, cursing and being angry and feeling everything is against you. And now even this water glass fell down. Walk away. And when you come, you come back while you're thinking of something totally different. You're going to pick up these shards and it's going to be fine. And so the idea to take reactiveness out of the equation, to not just give tit for tat, to not do the eye for an eye thing, I believe takes you in a space where you actually have choices, where the reactiveness of, you know, this person said that to me and I'm going <laughs> to punch their lights out. <laughs> oh, my God. And what do you think we gain? Because obviously we wouldn't, we wouldn't cling to what you just said. We wouldn't replay things. We wouldn't cling to how wronged we were if there wasn't something we weren't getting right in doing that, like there's some reason that we do it, right? Mm -hmm. What do you think that reason is? Release, release of energy. Yeah. And that energy is still in you and it needs to be released in other ways, but you can almost like a precious drop of uh, essence. Mm -hmm. You use that energy for something more productive than just hitting back something where you're not growing, you know, where you're just returning the same stupidity. And I am very much about each one of us have things to learn and to teach where again and again, if we have the inner presence and strength to step out of the moment and saying, I don't want to engage in this stuff. I'm going to walk away now. And when my emotions have calmed down a little bit, I will approach this with an open heart because right now I can't. My heart is closed. Right. All I have right now is maybe anger and some irrational violence in me or something like this. Mm-hmm. And there are times and spaces where irrational violence can be very helpful, you know, and can be used. I mean, half of sports is about that. That's you true. know, in society, yeah. this is the, you know, um, 
transformed violence and anger that all of us sometimes have. It gets out in sports. Because that really is the release of energy. That it really is. is. It is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a good and point. so I feel this is maybe a philosophical statement I want to make is that I do believe part of our work here is, like I said, to transform energy, energy that has become maybe stale or bitter or angry mm -hmm. in an older family system, meaning that it could be generations old. It could be that both your great-grandma and your grandma and then your mom were all super suppressed women who could never do what they wanted because they got beaten up by their drunk husband, just as an example. And then you continue that story. You know, if you take that emotion and you turn this around and you become different, you actually not just heal yourself, you heal that family system's energy generations into the past, but also generations into the future. And so if we can transform energy like this by not just multiplying it all the time, multiplying the anger and the hatred and mm -hmm. all, all this stuff. You know, this is what we're experiencing right now in our society. And I'm very much in favor of taking a step back in these moments and realizing this is not who I want to be. If this person who is aggressive with me makes me being super aggressive, they have won because they've changed me. Yeah. I don't want to give them that power over me. I have to have the inner presence and wisdom to walk away, remember who I am, how I want to react in a situation, you know, how what I can add to this world. And uh, it doesn't mean you have to be a wall, uh, like a, um, a doormat and let everybody roll over you and, and be abused or something like this. It just means that you find more sophisticated tools to tell them no, stop. Uh, and you don't have to knock them back and, you know, hurt them or stuff like that. Yeah. And it's interesting because our bodies already do that naturally. It seems like with things we digest, right? Like mm. it takes the good, it takes the nutrients out and then we discard whatever portion, I guess, of it isn't <laughs> usable. Yeah. Like our bodies kind of are mm -hmm. these so natural physical filtration systems already. So it makes perfect sense then that energetically or emotionally, we're created to do the same thing. And you know like what's so fascinating that all these diseases from the digestive tract, there's so many people who have bowel cancer um, all the way from stomach down to all this digestive, even down to anal cancer. And this has to do that they no longer can de decide what is it they want to hold on to and what is it they want to let go. Mm -hmm. They hold on to everything. Mm -hmm. And so that makes them sick. Yeah, yeah. Just jumping back a little bit to when you were talking about these forgiveness uh, ceremonies that you'll do. You, the, the example you used was like somebody just ran over somebody's father mm -hmm. and they're there at the same funeral. And I heard the end result with some of these is that people end up sometimes becoming friends and going on hikes together. But I mean, that's a pretty big one. And then you look at the smaller things where there's all this scarcity and separation of the way people won't even talk to somebody who just has this belief system. So, I mean, so... If it can happen with a death, right, surely it could happen in these other areas where there's maybe not even as much personal, you know, whatever injury associated. But as you've witnessed that, what is it, do you think, I, I would guess that people are listening, that they're finally really seeing and they're hearing each other. And instead of me seeing this person as this person who ran over this family member, I'm seeing the humanity in them or something. But like, Give a little more description of what that sometimes looks like. I'm guessing at first it's not pretty and it's not. And, and it gets back to the opening statement that you made, that this yeah. is what a lot of us, a lot of people want to avoid, but yet it's the thing that's actually going to break open our hearts. 
Yeah. And I don't know if that's... It takes a lot of courage. Yeah. You know, in this example, it was really like a white, young, rich girl had run over a black, poor family member, like a father of three children, you know, and the wife. And um, so, yeah, there was immediately all these projections. Oh, this is intentional. This is racist. This is blah, blah, blah. And then when I spoke to this young woman, she was so devastated about this, mm -hmm. you know. And so I facilitated this meeting This was not in a funeral. This was at a, actually a yoga studio. It was a, a private event where I even had some person for security because I didn't know what they would do to each other. And so the idea is exactly as you said, to discover each other's humanity, to realize all of us can make mistakes, right. that this is not personal. It sounds funny, but if you're in an earthquake or in a landslide, you're not... You know, nature doesn't mean this personal against you to wipe you out. Exactly. You know, this young girl didn't do this on purpose. Yes, she was careless. Absolutely. Yes, she regrets this for the rest of her life. But um, to say that to each other, you know, to in the beginning, you do say maybe, how could you do this? You know, because there's these moments they then in the beginning yell at each other and they need to get this energy out. Mm -hmm. This is important to be heard in your pain and also in feeling guilty And then to have somebody like me, kind of many people do that, facilitator to help bring these two, it's almost like a wound, which has these two sides of a, a cut, you know, the two sides of the tissue has to be brought together again and stitched together, mm, <laughs> basically. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's what these uh, forgiveness ceremonies do. It's a profound, amazing experience. And just to a very quick detour, I worked as a war correspondent for five years, and in it I was seeing horrible atrocities, obviously. I was, for example, also in Rwanda, where there was a lot of bloodshed, and in South Africa. And, and you I, saw, I yeah, mean, you, you I saw, saw it a lot firsthand, of that stuff. right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so uh -huh. then in South Africa, I was at this uh, Peace and Reconciliation Commission, mm. and in Rwanda they had these Gakaka courts. These were always based on tribal old wisdom of how to facilitate forgiveness. And I was so profoundly moved by what crazy things they could forgive each other. Uh, you know, yeah. we sometimes cannot forgive when somebody rear ends us in the car and it's a tiny manage, little damage, it's tiny, and people get totally riled up about it. But what big things can be forgiven when you realize, okay, we all together make this world happen with all its beauty and all its ugliness. And we all hold responsibility for everything If you say it like this, then it doesn't become so personal anymore. And I do feel this helps a lot in the forgiveness process. You know, it also helps to be heard, of course. If this woman couldn't speak her truth sure. to the one who ran her husband over, then she probably all her life would have said, I'm going to go there and kill her, you know, and these kind of things. They don't allow us to heal. Yeah. But we need to move on. These ceremonies really help a lot. And you, you raised a really good point, too, on that about, like, in this case, you said the woman, she probably couldn't have done it on her own. And so, like, you were there as an assist, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably another great point for anybody listening to is that we aren't really created to do this alone, that we need those, whether it's a therapist or somebody who does work you do, that that like a lot of times we kind of do need that help because mm -hmm. it's hard. Yeah. And it's and it's like sometimes we just need somebody that will first listen to us because that's probably what you did with her is she felt heard first by you. And that alone probably must have felt so liberating for her mm. to at least be heard by one person and then 
Yeah, and not judged. And And I mean, this is in general what we learned talking back to the scarcity idea, you know, that actually when judgment and fear are everywhere, then the scarcity of love and understanding is very obvious. And I think all of us struggle with that a lot. Fear of judgment, fear of being kicked out of the community of accepted individuals. (laughs) Let's say we experience a lot of homelessness around where we live, you know, Mm -hmm. in Venice Beach. And so um, this is very clear to see. These people are, I believe, almost allowed to to be there by government and there's no help for them, which I feel is very unfair, just so that we are all supposed to be scared. We're all supposed to be scared. Oh my God, this could happen to me. I better work three jobs. I better go along with all the social norms so I'm not going to be an outcast like this. Mm -hmm. You know, it's almost like what they did in the Middle Ages to put somebody in the middle of the marketplace and lock them down and spit at them to publicly shame them. And yeah, this is a very brutal method. And I feel as a culture, we should be way beyond that. We should have the strength of compassion for people who, you know, fall off the the raster like this and not always assume it's their fault, it's their evilness. So I don't know what, but to just say, yeah, maybe something went wrong. We just don't know about. Mm -hmm. Maybe they didn't have all the chances we had, Mm -hmm. you know, to develop generosity and compassion more than just judgment and anger. Well, and I remember, I can think of, because LA does have such a high, like you said, homeless population. I think the number two of homeless people that I've heard going down an alley. And again, some of this is uh, mental health as well is a big issue here Mm -hmm. as well. But like so many times I'll hear they're, they're replaying a wound mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. it's like and i'm yeah. like hey I've, I, I've been there i can relate to that like <laughs> yeah. like mine may not be going like that but i'm like we all have that experience of mm-hmm. what it feels like and that's what i find so interesting so many times is there's that they're in that case their minds are going back to a place where they didn't feel seen where they felt wronged and again who knows if that how much that plays in but I, it just gets to this kind of broader place again of like what does it mean and I'm curious if you've seen, I'm assuming you've seen both, but you know, one of the hopes of this podcast is that it's everything that we've talked about, that people would listen to this and think we get one shot. This is not a dress rehearsal. This is it. So what does it look like to try to live life with no regrets? Not just in quote what we do and following our mm-hmm. dreams. Like that's awesome. But what does it mean to hopefully die not having any resentment in our heart, mm-hmm. not having anyone that we haven't forgiven? You've probably seen both maybe where some of your ceremonies where you can tell that people have made peace and then are there mm-hmm. ones where they haven't? If I get involved in time and I often encourage families, you know, to contact me before somebody dies, not mm. just when there is a body and then it's all technical funeral talk or something yeah. for many people. But so, yeah, then I try to facilitate with that person, the dying person, if he or she can talk to see, is there somebody they still need to meet, you know, is somebody who still we should invite for them. Yeah. Maybe they need to apologize. Maybe they yeah. need to come clean with something, you mm-hmm. know, and I've had a lot of moments where I say, yes, please call my sister. We haven't talked in 20 years, or, you know, things like this. And mm-hmm. they hold on, even though the doctor says, oh, I can't, this guy is not going to make it till tomorrow. And he holds on three more days because only then her plane comes in. Or, you yeah. know, it's amazing what you see there and how powerful humans can be if they really want to come to that place. So it is, and this is actually a really important thing. I found that nobody dies before they're ready and have come to that place. And the strange thing is it can sometimes occur in the last second, maybe in case of an accident, even in the last split second 
before you're severed from your physical body, that time stretches out like, you know, when they say time stretches in a black hole into an eternity where you can examine your choices in life. You can rethink what happened and you can come during this little moment uh, to a place of peace and only then you exit that body. If you're not okay with that, life will find an amazing way to bring you back, you know, and mm -hmm. it has happened many times that people who were supposed to be dead somehow mysteriously alive um, after that because they have not come to the place of peace. And I have about probably by now 1,500 people died in my arms and I've accompanied this process many times. And my own sister, my own both parents died in my arms. And it was always about bringing them to that point and chaperoning them with love to the one side of the river so that our ancestors, you know, can pick them up on the other side so that they're never alone in the process and that they feel held in love that's totally unconditional. And this is what one expects or hopes, you know, for all of our lives that we are brought in by a mother who has some kind of unconditional love and then be brought out by, in my case, a death midwife who can help with that. And I do feel that people, no matter how much they're struggling with the process of dying in the beginning, you know, when they hear the news from a doctor and they rail against it, maybe for months, you know, as the process winds down, as their body fails them more and more, and maybe they're in pain and super discomfortable or they need diapers and all their feelings of pride and self-reliance are going out the window, that they are slowly actually are um, accepting and embracing what's coming and in the end, in the best case of scenarios, really fully come to a place of understanding. And this is a beautiful process, which I always feel extremely honored to witness. Mm. Mm. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. It puts almost everything we just talked about in perspective and a summary of, I think, everything we've hit on. So thanks for taking time just to talk today. And I think it's, yeah, it's fun to, to chat and to record this. And <laughs> Thank you, Jay. And thanks for doing this podcast. And I'm excited to hear more of the stuff you record. Thanks. Thanks. It's a scarcity complex podcast.